welcome to the fourth episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. This week, we're looking at the career of the potential superstar who turned out to be... Well, we'll find out. That's Graham Hick. And in our second innings, we'll focus on England's 93-94 tour, a time when the tide began to turn in Caribbean cricket. Now, unlike Alan Lamb at Sydney in 1987, it's not entirely down to us to get the show over the line. The 80s and 90s cricket show is sponsored by Anderton Law, the firm that specialises in employment matters. So if you have any issues at work, do not hesitate to contact them at andertonlaw.co.uk. Our guests this week are Emma John, the author of 90s cricket book Following On, a memoir of teenage obsession and terrible cricket. Hello, Emma. Hi. Peter Hayter, columnist at the Cricket Paper and Ghostwriter for, amongst others, Ian Botham and Marcus Truscothic. Hi, Peter. Hello. And we're also joined by Rob Smythe, freelance cricket writer. Hello. Hi, Rob. Don't forget you can find us on the web at 80sand90scricket.co.uk and it's also been a pleasure to see so many listeners contacting us via Twitter at CrickShow80s90s. So we'll begin with uh, some scene setting. Peter, it's 1991 and Graham Hick is about to make his debut for England. Can you outline what that felt like in English cricket to have waited so long and the man eventually coming to the crease? Yeah, well, it goes without saying there was a tremendous sense of anticipation. Clearly, Hick's record in county cricket and his performances in county cricket in the seven years he was having to wait to qualify just you know made everyone agog with the possibility of what he might do playing for England. That may have been part of the problem, of course, and we'll probably discuss that later. But in terms of uh, how people were looking forward to him playing, it was also a chance, we felt, or England supporters felt, that there might be someone who could actually stand up to the West Indies fast bowlers, uh, as Gooch had done in the past, and Gower and other players, but actually make a difference in a, in a test series. The last time we'd played them, England had played them in, in the Caribbean, they got so close to putting off a fantastic result there. And you just felt at that time, had there been one more batsman capable of uh, consistent and significant scores, that might have tipped the balance in England's favour. Of course, on that previous tour, Gucci got injured, so they were one batsman light anyway. Maybe this was the guy who was going to do it. As a fan, Emma, what what was was and I was as, as well. What what were our feelings about about Hick? Do you recall what that was like? Well, yes. Yeah. So my introduction to Hick did not come until ninety three because that's when I met cricket. And so when I arrived at this legend of Hick, he was actually already he'd already started unfortunately to slightly disappoint uh, his his uh you know his waiting fans and i i would have come into it exactly at the point where after two years in in the england team well in and out of the england team mostly out let's face it uh that there were already the the county supporters of him who said he is a wonderful wonderful player and he just needs time it's all going to click and then the more England focused fans who were saying, well, you know, look what happened in 91. 
you know, it's he's all a bit overhyped. I, of course, because I'd come along in 93, I had not experienced that incredible moment at Taunton when he was still three years away from qualifying. Uh, he was only 21 and um, he scored his 405. And this was, this had already grown to such enormous legend. Of course it would do. I mean, it's such a, such an incredible score. It was only one off the highest championship score of all time. And, and so there was sort of controversy, I suppose, around him from the start. And, and, and already I think there was a wonderful Bruff Scott quote that said there was so much, um, anticipation around him that it was sort of tinged with sadness. And, and, and there was almost like a, a Greek tragedy waiting to happen, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's very, very well put. I'll come to, my memories of the 405 in a moment. But Rob, do, do you remember where you were? It was a, In some ways, it was a bit like sort of the, the Kennedy moment for, for us cricket fans in the 90s. I do remember where I was. As with many experiences of cricket in those days, it was via teletext, basically, just watching it go up and up and up. Yeah, the interesting thing about that innings is that, well, among other things, is he almost actually beat Somerset by an innings on his own. They scored 2-2-2 two, 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 and 1-9-2, so that's 4-1-4 in the game. Nobody else scored more than 56, so we'll get on to the whole flat-track bully stuff. But it's kind of interesting. It wasn't just a, you know, had he scored it two years later in the, the summer of runs, it might have been a 4-5 in underscore of 800, but... That wasn't the case at all. It all kind of reinforced the feeling that he was just kind of cricketer cyborg. You know, he was just putting up numbers that we didn't understand. When he started his test career, I think he already had 50 first-class centuries, uh, averaged over 60 in first-class cricket. I mean, it was just, it was like England had found a cheat code, basically. That's what it felt like. Yeah, I mean, I, that was my experience. I put CFAX on when I think it came in from work, and you know, sometimes you you wonder whether these these memories are true. And you know, somebody will say, "Oh, you know, he was out at two thirty in the afternoon." But my my memory is putting CFAX on, and it, I think it was the lead story on CFAX's front page, not just sort of cricket's front page or sports front page, which is three hundred and one. Cricket was three hundred and forty one for the headlines, and it was Hick on three hundred and seventy eight something like that so you sort of furiously go to page 377 and then you sit there for half an hour staring at this scorecard as it clicks over from 377 to 379 to 383 and so on and I mean it 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 was sort of big news and I think it was in the news that day and and I've looked for the the episode of Wogan which I remember and Rob you've mentioned this as well yes so but Mark Selleck of Anderson Law the guy who created this podcast reminded me that he um Hick appeared on Wogan and I in just for his test debut so I looked it up and I couldn't find it for ages and then I tried misspelling his first name and of course the guardian being the guardian they'd done precisely that so he was actually on on friday the 26th of april 1991 he was on the wogan show with jeremy beadle and winona Ryder, which is quite a lineup <laughs> but the fact he was on that you know prime time friday night shows the level of hype but also can you imagine how uncomfortable he must have been i mean i i can't find the actual episode but it's not exactly his scene is it Prime it would be amazing to right. yeah it would be sort of strange to even picture that considering yeah. how shy he was i mm. i found a lovely quote from vic marks writing about that 405 he said he didn't take too many liberties until the late 200s <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really wonderful. And then yeah. Vic admitted that he was also, you know, personally grumpy that the Worcestershire captain didn't allow 
Hick to go on and reach the championship record score, which was 424 against Lancashire, which had been scored by Archie McLaren also at Taunton. And, and, and Vic really felt, you know, there is, there is history at hand here, people. You, you, yeah. you should have just let him carry on. It's funny because that, that became a recurring theme of his career, obviously. But I read his, he published a book in 91, My Early Life, and he talks about that. And he said, I wasn't annoyed. And goes on and says, you know, the team must always come first, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure he felt that way at Sydney in 95, though. I'll tell you something else about that book. And and this, it it struck me that this may be Hick in a nutshell. On the back of the paperback version of that book, which I have in front of me, Graham Hick, My Early Life, can you believe, (laughs) um, which was published in 92. Well, he was only about 26 then. It says on the back, when Graham Hick made his England debut at the age of 24, it was already clear that cricket had found a batsman to rival the legendary Don Bradman. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, talk about putting yourself under pressure. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, Hick wouldn't have written that, written that himself, nor, by the way, would Pat Murphy of this parish, mm. who, who helped him with the book. But some publicists decided that was a, a line to put on the back of a book. Well, Don Bradman? Come on. You know, 99.94 test average. Uh, and we're saying this guy rivaled him. Peter Roebuck, funnily enough, who was uh, playing for Somerset that day, I think he was the captain, also described him as, he said, I never saw Walter Hammond bat, but I imagine he was something like this. So in those days, even someone as sober as a a judge as um, Peter Roebuck, not saying he wasn't sober as a judge, by the way, (laughs) uh, he was comparing Graham Hick with Walter Hammond. So that was the level at which people were pitching Hick so that's very hard. You know, talk about um, people's expectations being high. That's absolutely crazy. Incidentally, in that 405, Roebuck also said that he might have had him out before he scored, before, um, uh, before he got off the mark with a clip off his legs just off the ground, about shin high. And Roebuck said later that uh, he had been considering putting a fielder in there because Hick was prone early on in the innings to flicking off his legs in the air. So... There you go. It might never have happened. Yeah. Uh, my memory of, of Woken, and th- there is an interesting parallel here, is that he really was a rabbit in the headlights. He was sort of grinning when he he shouldn't have been grinning, and he was tongue-tied. He was very shy. Uh, and Wogan was doing his best in his avuncular style. But he, he reminded me, and there was something of, of this in how it turned out, with the hype surrounding Zola Budd, uh, in the 84 mm. Olympics, yeah. and both were Southern Africans who'd lived somewhat sheltered lives, being thrust into not just sporting celebrity, but national celebrity. Neither found it easy, and, and neither eventually came through with the, the full potential, um, but that full potential was, as you've indicated, as absurdly high with Hick as it was with, with Zola. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? New Zealand had, had also... Didn't New Zealand make a kind of pitch for him and offer mm. him four years of qualification? That's right, And yeah. you just think... Do you, do you think New Zealand would have just suited him a bit better? <laughs> Absolutely. No Wogan in New Zealand. <laughs> uh, and they, Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable point, actually. Also, you must one must speculate what might have happened had he not had to do a seven-year qualification period. Yes. You know, he, he scored that 405 in 1988. He didn't make his debut for another three years. Well, mm. talk about picking someone who's on form. 405 gets you in any team. And he might have just been able, at that age, to have slightly less expectation 
if you're that young and that good, although, you know, you are carrying somewhat of a burden of expectation, you're also understood to be a bit young for this game and might have been given a bit more leeway to learn and to learn from his mistakes. But he was considered to be the finished article when he started playing for England. And that, um, you know, and of course, his first series against West Indies was a bit of a, uh, a chastening experience for him, as it was for every batsman except for Gra- uh, Graham Gooch, perhaps. Well, let's let's come to that now, because he, he finishes his, I think it was seven-year period of yeah. qualification, because yes. um, he played as a, a very young man for Zimbabwe at 17, I think. Um, so he finishes... And he goes out to face a ferocious, still ferocious West Indies side in, in 1991, uh, making his bow in Test cricket at the same time as Mark Remprakash, who's the career of whom um, the, these two paralleled each other in some ways. Um, so I'll, I'll pick it up with you, if I may, uh, Peter. What was it like amongst the, the media in, in expectations for Hick in 91, and how did it turn out? Massive expectations, uh, you know, um, these comparisons with people like Bradman and Hammond, they weren't just out of thin air. People really just did genuinely believe that's how good he was. I don't know. I, I think there's also in people's psyche about, about someone like Graham Hick, a little bit in the back of your mind, you, you want him to prove himself and to be great. But there's also the thing about maybe he's not that good. Maybe he will be found out. And that's poss- I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but there would have been also people you know, who had been bombarded by all this hype, thinking, well, is he really that good? Let's, you know, go out and prove it. I've got a feeling that that, that mindset might have been around the fringes of the England dressing room. I, I, I might be doing them a disservice, but, you know, there were people in that England dressing room who weren't Graham Hick, weren't as good as Graham Hick, and hadn't had all that hype around them, who had just, you know, got to the top of their profession and, and you know, wanted to go out and do their best. And they t- maybe they just felt, well, who is this guy coming here who's going to show us all how to, be, how, how to play? I think later on... Uh, quite recently, Hick did an interview on from Australia, which Sky broadcast, which which indicated that he didn't feel particularly welcome in the England dressing room. Now, of course, if you're Graham Hick and you're, um, you're the character he was, and as you've said about the Wogan interview, he was a very, very shy guy. You know, you're not going to sit down and dominate the England dressing room. But I don't know whether at that time there was a feeling of the old pro thing of um, the guy's got to earn his spurs and so on and so forth. Was he made welcome in the England dressing room? By the terms of the England players in the dressing room, they probably felt he was. But was he? did he himself feel that and did that? enable him to relax i'm not so sure i i would argue that nobody in, in that england dressing room ever particularly got made <laughs> to feel welcome i mean that that so, was my that's that's from from chatting to players from back then that is the story that comes on over and over again is that you know if you were a new a newcomer into that dressing room that there was there was no pastoral care there was no not. arm round the shoulder because the selections were you know turning over so fast and it was all about you know sort of manning up this this weird masculinity that that was probably mm. toxic uh, and that was to do with exactly like you say show us what you've got earn mm. your spurs no one's no one gave me a hand so no one's giving you a hand i think that mm. was the kind of mentality that just got absolutely um you know stuck through that whole 90s period and for somebody like hick 
you know, who was an emotional person. And he said that since, mm. you know, he was, he was not ashamed or embarrassed to be an emotional person. And there was a story that was oft told about how he had once wept when he had been dropped by Atherton again in a 95 series. And, and he'd, he'd been seen crying. And Ray Illingworth basically, you know, said that just shows this guy's not made for this. You know, he's soft. And, mm. and, and it just shows how different the attitudes are in what we expect of sportsmen and demand of sportsmen then and today. You know, showing a bit of emotion was was terrible back then. He was perhaps unique in some ways and that he was a tall poppy, but we mm. hadn't yet seen the flower because mm. all of his tallness as a poppy was, was at a level below in, in county cricket. As you say, without facing a ball in test cricket, he was the new Bradman. I mean, it's an extraordinary burden for anyone to carry. Steve Wars said one thing interestingly about him, that, that the seven-year qualification period did him a disservice in as much as he got used to playing in county cricket against county attacks, and no disrespect to them, by the way, because they were pretty decent. Mm. But the, 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 the real tough test of temperament and technique and everything else is test cricket. So after seven years of, you know, the flat track bully uh, term that was put on him by John Bracewell of New Zealand was unfair, but he had been massacring county attacks for that length of time. So then he comes up against the best, fastest attack in the world. That's a test in itself. And, um, you know, all the things combined, he was uh, in this book that I've actually have read to research this chat we're going to have. Um, he was sent away to boarding school at six. Uh, regular beatings were administered. He reckoned about three times a week. This was the toughening up process that much beloved of some white uh, Zimbabwean and South Africans at the time. And he came out of that process believing himself to be tough. And other people also considered him to be tough, mentally tough. So this is the great mystery about Hick to me, along with DRS and the umpire's call. How... <laughs> did someone who was so physically strong and fit and one of the, you know, they called him Arnie after Arnie Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, the England team, and so good at what he, what he was doing and so apparently mentally strong, just couldn't hold it all together when, it, when, it, when the pressure was really on. No one's ever going to solve that one, I don't think. But this really raises a, a, an interesting point, and I'm going to come to you on, on this one, Rob, which is that the kind of prevailing narrative of, of Hick is that he was a, a, a failure, but he wasn't a, a failure perhaps over his whole career when, when looked at, and we'll look at some of his uh, one-day cricket as well uh, before we finish this section. But there were times in his test career when he was also, you know, a, a leading a leading batsman, not just in English test cricket, but in test cricket as a whole. And you've done some analysis of this. You say analysis, that, that's slightly generous. But yeah, I think you can split <laughs> his career into three sections. So 18-month uh, period up to his maiden 100, 13 tests, average 19. Next three years, 29 tests, average 48. However, in that period, he was dropped twice, which is crazy. And then the last five years of his career, 23 tests, average 19. So you get 19, 47, 19. So the 47 period is interesting because he sort of cracked it. It felt like he had. But this is most of this is while Illingworth is in charge, which is really paradoxical. Um, so it just adds to the contradiction, I guess. But there was a period for three years when he played really well for the most part, culminating in what I think was his masterpiece, um, one for one at Centurion against Donald Pollock, Brett Shorts, Brian McMillan on quite a lively pitch. 
first day of the series, so you know he was often accused of scoring slightly cheaper runs in dead rubbers or second innings of a lost game. You can't find fault with this innings, and it looked like he really cracked it. And actually, it turned out that was his final flourish, pretty mm. much. I saw that, and I also saw the one seven eight in in India. Yeah, that was a terrific they were, innings. They were fantastic innings, and and they were the ones that made. That's the crux of it. You saw him play like that, and you thought, well, "Why doesn't just do it like that more?" I mean, Centurion was the innings I thought that stood out because it was against fast bowling. Alan Donald, blimey, yeah. speed of light on on a on a lively pitch, as you say. So this thing about he couldn't play fast bowling, I just don't think that was right either. No. It's just, honestly, it's a, a mystery wrapped in an, an enigma, as they say, because he could do this stuff. Moving on, the declaration that Atherton did in Sydney when he was on 98 was pretty, was catastrophic, frankly, because that would have been his first Ashes 100. And I, I think uh, as, as brilliant as the innings against um, India was in India on a turning pitch, and as fantastic as the innings of 1-4-1 was against that South African attack, an Ashes 100 is something else, and it would have been in Australia. I just think that extra two runs, had he got them, you know, you can speculate, but I think he just would have felt, OK, I, I can actually do this now, and, and that may well have been the difference. Atherton has said he's regretted it since, that he wasn't at the time, he thought it was the right thing to do, but in hindsight he wouldn't have done it. Other people have said much the same thing. You know, you pay your money and take your choice over the declaration. England needed to win that test match and, and here could block three balls in a row and have been told the declaration was coming. So maybe no one's fault. But just if there had been a possibility of him getting those extra runs, what a difference that might have made. Robert, you've got a lovely phrase uh, that I saw about that uh, particular innings and about centuries in general. Well, I don't know. I just think they were his... They were his currency before he started in Test cricket, and then, and when he did start, particularly when he struggled, they became his means of validations, particularly the symbolic centuries. So the first one, obviously, first three West Indies, first three Australia. Turned out he never got one against Australia. And Angus Fraser told a good story in in Jamaica in ninety three, ninety four. Hick was on ninety four in the second inning. Fraser was injured, so he was twelfth man. Went out with a drink or something, and Hick said, "I'd pay a million pounds for these last six runs," which is a really odd thing to kind of volunteer, particularly if you're a shy bloke. Anyway, a really odd, kind of slightly odd thing to say. He then got out ninety six. Brilliant catch by Roger Harper. And I just think it wasn't necessarily runs and average. I think centuries were more important to him than to most batsmen. However, the 98 night out, and I completely agree, I think that must have done all sorts of subconscious damage. But it was followed by probably his best year in Test cricket. So there are these contradictions everywhere, um, mm. which make it really hard to resolve. I think the biggest mystery for me is the summer of 96, because... We all thought he cracked it. They had India at home when India were dreadful away from home, didn't have much of a seam attack. Euro 96 was going on the football tournament, so the cricket was in the background, you know, no, not much hype or anything. First day of the one-day series, he scored 91 on his 30th birthday, played brilliantly. It just looked like he cracked it. And there's a couple of quotes in an interview that are quite poignant, actually, for the start of that summer. He said, with Jack Ballister, in the past, I never felt quite right for England, but I think I've now made a big breakthrough. Even so, I've still got some way to go, but I feel sure I can do it. And then that summer, he had an unmitigated shocker against India. He kept finding these weird and wonderful ways to get out. He was caught mid-off off Sour of Ganguly, which is absurd. He actually finished bottom of the averages, below even Alan Mullally. I mean, how does that happen? Um, <laughs> I thought he would score thousands of runs that summer. In the end, three tests against India, nothing. One against Pakistan when Wacker Yunus yorked him twice in single figures. He was dropped and he, he played again intermittently in the next five years but I think that summer killed him and 
I don't know why. Illingworth talks about him not sleeping properly during that summer. I get no idea why, but it just made no sense to come from good two years against Australia West Indies in South Africa and then flop spectacularly I mean, against it, a weak India. That is true, but also we, you know, we know like even our greatest batsmen like Alistair Cook and people have have inexplicable periods of That's bad form true. that can go on for for a season or a year or more. I think there was a great deal of confirmation bias around Hick. Um, he didn't get enough chances because every single time he failed, it was mm. confirming yeah. what everybody thought that he couldn't do it. So, so whereas other people, you know, made bad scores and were still still kept their place in the team, he was dropped and recalled eleven times in his career, and and it happened to Ramprakash as well. You know, I think Ramprakash is an interesting comparison. You know, different psychology had had different kinds of nerves. Uh, but what's really interesting to me is the fact that the two of them, despite being, you know, lumped together in this kind of unfulfilled potential, never spoke to each other about it I know, during that's their playing career. Yeah. Never mm. kind of went out for dinner. And th- there was just none of that kind of mutual support. And and Ramprakash says he regrets it now. And of course now they're they're, they're they've both been batting coaches for opposing sides <laughs> in in an Ashes test. I mean that tells you that they are you know that they've got something about them and uh, uh, not just their batting but also their ability to understand what makes a good batsman. I think that's an interesting the, the- the Ramprakash Hick thing is interesting because, of course, Ramprakash and Hick did make their debuts the, fa- the same summer in '91. But when they went to New Zealand the following winter, uh, probably an easier uh, task than facing the West Indies attack, it was Hick who got the nod. And Ramps actually was quite upset by that. Ramps had scored 20s, I think, of three or four mm. 20s in that series. His highest score, probably 27, but it was better than Hicks, and he looked the part a bit more. And then, of course, it was Hick who was given first go, and Ramps, I just don't think he quite liked that, and, and so there was tension between the two of them. My last thought if we're about Hick was that what people said when he used to go into bat, when he was feeling confident and playing county cricket, he used to get out there virtually before the previous batsman had got back to the dressing room. He used to bound out, chest out, shoulders back, ready for it. You saw in test cricket so often he would look as though he was dragging himself out there sometimes. And there was something in his head, I don't know, something inside him that meant it was just possibly just too much, just too much anticipation, expectation, pressure, too much something for him to to actually fulfil his extraordinary potential. Just on the point of hunger there and the comparison with Alistair Cook, I I looked up a, a little stat myself that tells me that when Alistair Cook comes out to bat next season and makes his first century for Essex, he'll be halfway, halfway to Graham Hicks' 136 first class. Halfway. Yeah. Imagine. Emma, I want to come to you with our last topic before we kind of try and get some kind of synthetic uh, summary of, of Hick, if that's possible. And in fact, uh, we, we're already finding that it's going to be difficult to do. But I, I take all those all those points about the, the toxic environment and, and how someone like Hick would be treated very differently, both in terms of the endless series of drops and recalls, but also the, the support he will get in the dressing room. But yet you look at his one-day record, and I, I've twice been jolted by looking at sort of all-time 11s of England one-day cricket, and, and Hick's in there, and he's in there by 
right. I mean, he scored his runs an average of 37, which is decent in, in one-day cricket. His 120 uh, one-day internationals at a very handy strike rate of uh, 74. Have you any suggestion as to why he worked so well as a one-day batsman whilst Test cricket proved this insurmountable challenge? You know, we've got to remember back in the early 90s, there was a very different, I think, attitude to one day series. You know, the World Cup was still was still an absolute peak mm. event. But, you know, there were still enough people being dismissive of, of one day cricket that I'm sure there was uh, that there felt like there was a bit less pressure on that. But also the one thing that, that you know, everyone used to say about Hick was his his eyesight, um, his ability to pick up the ball that kind of uh reflex and again a reason i think it's sort of incorrect to say he he couldn't play short pitch bowling you know that that was a kind of myth that got surrounded by him he actually had this incredible ability to see a ball and to be very precise in where the gaps were and where to direct it and and i think i think that's what came to the fore in his one day game and the other I thing is the, the intensity was so much greater in Test cricket. But I know it's slightly simplistic, but in one-day cricket, you're the hunter. In Test cricket, you're the hunted. And I just don't think he was comfortable with that. One other thing on his one-day career, which was generally very good, if you actually look, his World Cup record is pretty poor. There was a really good 80 in the 92 semi-final, But apart from that, in crunch games, it wasn't great. And I think that just ties in with his whole career. I think... Just very quickly, the, two, the one time he dom- really dominated Australia and West Indies was for Worcestershire. 187 v Australia in 93. I think one, I forget, a big 100 against West Indies in 88. That can't be a coincidence. No, agree. I, I felt for what it's worth. I, I always felt, and we didn't have the kind of cameras that we have now, but I felt he had a kind of heavy front leg. You know, these days we'd say he planted the front foot a little bit. And Maybe there's just a little bit, you know, you hear about tennis players going tight on a first serve where the arm gets tight, the shoulder gets tight. And I just wonder whether in, in test cricket or in, in big games, he just didn't have that relaxation to make a, a separate adjustment as much in weight distribution as in as in his, his front foot. And he got himself into positions which he couldn't get out of with that tightness, which didn't happen in county cricket and didn't happen perhaps in some of the lower profile ODRs. I think he got better at that. He worked with Keith Fletcher on that, actually, just being relaxing, being a bit more limber. But my, I personally, I think he was vulnerable to the short ball, but only early on, but he was very stiff in his first series. I think he got better and progressively the problem became mental rather than technical. Yeah, I don't yeah. think there were huge technical problems from 93, 94 months. It's interesting, even Duncan Fletcher, who... Um, it's kind of the high priest of batting technique. Said he did. By the time he got to work with Hick, there were no tech. He didn't see a technical problem. He just thought he'd taken too. He had too much negative reinforcement, taken too many knocks to come back. Yeah. You know, well, mental, mental turns into physical, doesn't it? If you're if you're yeah, agitated exactly. and nervous and the crease, you're stiff. Your hands are hard. You know, you go at the ball rather than letting the ball come to you. It's it's all wrapped up in that. I think thinking about it all, taking it in the round, the county game. The test matches, the ODIs, um, hit or miss? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, here we go, the absurdly high expectations, and that colours everything. It's got to be a miss because um, he was a brilliant player, a brilliant player who just couldn't bring that brilliance to, to the, the test arena, and that means, I'm afraid, he's a miss. Mm. Emma. Well, he was he finished his career eighth on the all-time list of first-class century makers, scoring 106 of them for his county. I to me 
that is a hit. You can't take that away from him. And, and I think again, like it's interesting. He some of the the things that he valued most about his England career. He, for example, I think said his his most important innings for England was a 40 in Karachi to help win the series against Pakistan in 2000 and 2001. And I just feel like he has become so much a part of our cricketing history. Um, we have to give him his due. Rob? I would say a qualified miss because test cricket defines people. I, I think Hick and Rampakash are interesting. I think Rampakash... I don't know them just from seeing interviews. I think he's, Rampakash is so much more at peace with his test career than Hick. I think it still haunts Hick. I, I think of it almost like a variation on Icarus. Icarus, the man who was pushed too close to the sun, <laughs> you know, went there reluctantly. And I just, I think deep down he's still haunted by it. There's just one last thing. Simon Hattonston did an interview with him and he told a really interesting story that Hick had seen a psychologist. He said, basically, you have to admit to someone close to you that you failed at test level. And Hicks sort of mumbled it to a friend, a really close friend, but the friend didn't hear him and just kept gabbing. Um, and Hick just kind of let him talk. And I don't, so I don't know whether that gave him any closure or not, but I don't know. I think a qualified miss, all told. But uh, one thing, I think a different era, particularly with central contracts, it could have been so much different. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, for me, I'm, I'm more with, with Emma. I think if we if we can discard the kind of hysteria, dare I say, <laughs> which uh, which greeted his debut in Test cricket. I think he gave a, a lot of joy to a lot of uh, of cricket followers. He gave a lot of frustrations as well. But you know, at his best, he was a he was a hell of a sight to watch as well. He he had something of Matthew Hayden's uh, strength and presence at the crease, but without that relentlessness, there was a fragility as well. It was much more like real life rather than an automaton. You know, we we kind of need Hick in some ways to show us just how hard this game is. So I, I'm going with a qualified hit, but it just goes to show that amongst the four of us a consensus isn't really possible on <laughs> Graham Hick. What was it, Peter the Enigma wrapped inside? The mystery wrapped Russia, inside an enigma. Yeah, that, so that's Graham Hick. That's our look at <laughs> Graham Hick. So in the second innings of this episode of the 80s and 90s cricket show, we're looking at England's tour to the Caribbean in 1993-94. Um, Rob, I'll come to you first. I mean, it really begins with some fairly strange or somewhat unexpected shall we say selection yeah so what happened mike atherton became captain with two tests of the ashes remaining and england had a really uplifting win at the oval in the final test which secured a noble 4-1 series defeat um <laughs> atherton was young and starting out ted dexter had resigned as chairman of selectors so there was no chairman so he pretty much picked the squad he wanted and his plan was essentially to copy the australian model from the mid to late 80s pick young players of class and character, stick with them through thick and thin or thin and thinner and let them kind of flourish. So he picked a squad that had, I think, an average age of 26. Nobody had 50 caps. It was the first time in 17 years England had gone on tour without any of Gower, both from Gatting and Gooch in the squad. Um, so it was really was a clean break of the past. Gower was quite close, I think, um, but Atherton decided against it in the end. He said later his only regret, really, or his only two regrets, one was picking 17 players. They had too many spare parts. But what happened, they picked 17 because they expected one or two to have fingers broken by West Indies fast bowlers. And also they didn't, they picked, the two spinners were Tuffin and Salisbury and Atherton regretted not picking such because turned out West Indies entire middle order was comprised of left-handers and England had nobody to turn it away from the bat. But it was a really, it was a really kind of optimistic time because it looked like a completely clean break, a new era. And actually it looked like essentially Atherton foresaw what would happen with central contracts. But as we'll find out, it kind of didn't get to see it through to the end. 
So Robin Smith was the most experienced player in the squad with 45 caps. Uh, next was uh, Alex Stewart, who was vice-captain with 32. And um, Atherton, as captain, was uh, was the third most experienced with 29. I mean, it's extraordinary inexperienced uh, group that went out to the Caribbean. And uh, Peter, you were there uh, to see the lads on tour, and um, I understand they were pretty much lads on tour. (laughs) They were. were, Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) Well, there's something about the Caribbean that brings out um, certain characteristics in uh, in England cricket, as I was in those days. The only thing that Tuffrell can't resist is temptation. And for that, the first... I mean, Athos said... This is my team now. I'm, we're having younger players. We, we've gone out there with the older players and it hasn't worked. I want to invest in youth and see where we go from that. So he was entrusting in them a lot and he, he asked them to respect that. And he also gave them their head in that, that first, those first few weeks. But it was, I was, well, what can I say? Um, it was the only time I've written a piece for the paper, drunk, uh, was. <laughs> And uh, so uh, Tuffers had gone into trouble on one of the warm-up matches, <laughs> as per usual, one might say, no difference there. And um, Atherton afterwards had said, well, you know, I want him to be angry. I want him to get cross. This is the kind of thing I, I, I want from the players. It's You know, I want a bit of fire. So I, I, you know, I'd been out with the guys and I got back to my room quite late and I had to file for the mail on Sunday then and I thought I better get this done now because I'm not sure what state I'll be in in the morning and I and I I opened my laptop and I literally wrote absolute garbage. Um, <laughs> people say no change there either, but the fact was that I couldn't even see what I was writing. This and, is this is William Asburras as cricket reporter. <laughs> it's certainly fear and loathing in Antigua. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I wasn't the only one. There was a, there was a beach bar next door to the hotel where the guys stayed called uh, Miller's. I'm not giving away any confidences here, but the, the boys got stuck in, and there was a game. They they called every. You had to do this drinking game where you had to drink with your with a bottle in your left hand, and the this entitled you to membership of what was called the Buffalo Club. And if you were spotted drinking with your bottle or your drink in your right hand, everyone would shout Buffalo. <laughs> This is so weird. And and you would have to drink the entire contents oh. of what was in your right hand before you could resume your membership of the Buffalo Club. It was all fun and games and jolly japes. And actually, you know, they were they were seriously committed to what they were doing. And these were you know, they weren't doing this all the time. But I was slightly concerned that this new sort of laissez faire attitude from the new captain might come back to haunt them. And I, I learned subsequently from Tuffers that Desmond Haynes, who was his colleague in the Middlesex dressing room, at the end of their last game of the previous season at Lords, um, they were packing up to go, and he said, right, see you in the Caribbean, two toughers and to Angus Fraser. And he said, and by the way, uh, we're instructing our fast bowlers to kill you. So... Uh, <laughs> The, the Windies were right up for it. You know, they, they, they got a bit stung by the previous tour. They hadn't won in 91. That was a draw, wasn't it? And that was the first time they hadn't beaten England for a long time. And they were bang up for it. And Courtney and Kirtley and those guys were, you know, were ready to do what they needed to do. And actually, in that first test in Jamaica, which we might talk about in a minute, they unleashed a barrage against Devon and Malcolm, which was pretty 
bad. You know, they were Devon couldn't bat to save his life, as everyone knew. And they set out to hurt him and try and put him out of the series, which was you know, that's the kind of thing that happened. Yeah, we'll 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 come to, to that because as you say, there was plenty of steel amongst the uh the silk of the drinking games. But um yeah. uh, Mike Marchese, the much missed Mike Marchese and Matthew Engel both wrote pieces about the tour which kind of cast it in a in the light of of England or the UK at the time, because we were, it was winter. It was February when they the tour began, and um, there was a kind of sense that the the government was mired in sleaze. Um, we, were, we were kind of waiting for something to happen. There was a recession, uh, still not quite uh, coming out of that early nineties recession. So there's a there was a sense in which being let off the the leash for for the players that we felt a little bit of that i think watching on on television with the glorious caribbean sunshine and and a chance to watch some cricket amongst the gloom and um Emma, it must have affected you particularly because this was your initiation into the <laughs> the cult of uh, of cricketistas it, it really was so what had happened was i had begun watching cricket during the 93 ashes tour i'd come to it halfway through the tour uh, I was a 14-year-old schoolgirl and, you know, I'm sure I was supposed to be working or maybe doing chores and, and there was cricket on because my mum loves cricket and so I'd got watching it. I didn't really know. I, and then I fell for it very hard during that summer and I really, the reason I'd fallen for it was was all the things that um, Rob and Peter were saying about this new team. It was, it was, it was this kind of hope of this new young captain taking over and certainly that final win uh, that test win at the oval um that was really what sealed the deal for me i was like i'm i'm in love with this team this captain this game and then like you say there was this there was suddenly this huge vast empty space of months where there's no cricket i didn't know that that was what happened uh and um so i spent I hoovered up everything. I mean, I'm sure I've still got some of um, Peter's copy, you know, clipped out in some of my scrapbooks because I hoovered up absolutely everything. I could read about the squad and and the players. And um, it's interesting what Peter says about it, the laissez-faire attitude, because the funny thing as a fan and not knowing, not knowing, you know, what was actually happening out there, we had all been given this great impression that the England team was becoming a lot more professional. Um, (laughs) They had gone away for warm weather training in the Algarve and they had done this kind of boot camp at Lillishall, which Phil Tufnell, when I was writing my own book, complained about to me bitterly and said, (laughs) you know, they were sort of made to go off and do cold uh, cross country runs. And it was exactly the way to get 15 guys really pissed off before you (laughs) Um, so it's fascinating to hear that 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 the wheels came off when they got there Um, uh, but also makes makes kind of sense to me of one of the biggest problems of the tour (laughs) which Mm. was that they never ever found a middle order Uh, that they never found any kind of batting order that worked apart from having you know they did discover this wonderful uh opening partnership between atherton and stewart but now that i now that i've heard about you know their their initial four weeks uh, it makes a lot of sense because 
Atherton said at the time, you know, that that was what they were hoping. They were hoping they sort of threw all these young guys into the mix. And mm. then I think genuinely their their sort of aim was that somebody would stake a claim, as they, mm. you know, as they said in that management channel, which it's just really no way <laughs> to to create a team. Uh, this idea that people would just bob to the surface somehow. <laughs> you said that they, they didn't find a middle order. The middle order was at Miller's most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, was, that yeah, makes a lot of sense of, of the many collapses that were to come. It was quite literally a rum do indeed. But um, oh, well. I, I want to bring Rob, uh, Rob in on um, the kind of mood music that was in the background, which very much came to the, the surface uh, in Jamaica, as Peter has already alluded to with the hostility. But um, it also involves my favourite nickname in all sport, actually. The which dentist. was yeah, Absolutely. Uh, John the Dentist. Yeah, well, so there was still, it was still the era when you would have scare stories from tour games. There was this guy, John Maynard, called the dentist because of uh, his ability to extract teeth. I, I'd forgotten this and, and rediscovered it while doing my research. Jonathan Agnew on Sports Report actually called him John the Baptist, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, yeah, and there, but actually, I, there wasn't that much hostility. I think the Walsh Malcolm thing was an exception because Richie Richardson, who was very good natured, he was off the field at the time. That's exactly Walsh, right. Yeah, Walsh was captain and just kind of lost. I think I think Malcolm may have leathered him for four, and he didn't take too kindly to that. So earlier in the day, there'd been a brilliantly hostile spell to Atherton, which everyone was a winner because Walsh got Atherton out eventually, but Atherton earned so much respect from his teammates for the way, for how far he went for the team mm. and how much punishment he took. There's quite a funny moment in that. He um, took his eye off the ball and was hit on the arm and he shouted, you wanker, at himself. <laughs> and Walsh thought it was at him. <laughs> so the next bouncer was about five miles an hour quicker and Atherton <laughs> hastily explained to Walsh that he'd been talking to himself. Mm. Um, there were such great photographs came out of that battle as well. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, some of my my absolute enduring images of the whole of Atherton's career, the whole of 1990s cricket, are the ones of him sitting on his ass, like smiling, <laughs> looking up at, at Courtney, or it That's might so be it might have <laughs> been Kirtley, uh, because he'd just been he'd just been kind of completely thrown mm. over by a bouncer. <laughs> Don't forget the by the way in the build up to that the Pratt without the hat. Um, oh, oh yeah, yes. This refers to Chris Lewis, who had had a very good tour of India the previous year. Uh, you know, the pictures weren't necessarily in, uh, in his favour, but he looked good. And Atherton, you know, wanted to back him because he was clearly a, a player of excellent, huge potential with his fast bowling. And he decided he was going to practice early on, having shaved. Uh, Devon Malcolm shaved his head for him um, in obviously these very sunny, hot conditions without a hat, and he got sunstroke. So that was um, that caused Keith Fletcher, the, the coach, to call him a Pratt, uh, and therefore the headline writers at home were allowed to write the Pratt without a hat. The, the only disappointment in that was that it wasn't Ray Illingworth who called him a Pratt because he could have called him the Pratt Bartat. But, oh, um, <laughs> very much. good. And he'd been waiting how many years to say that? <laughs> <laughs> But um, there was this, you know, I, I think also what happened on that first day in, in Jamaica, if you remember, Atherton and Stewart uh, put on an excellent partnership and um, they returned to find Tufnell asleep in the dressing room and he'd slept through the entire first session. <laughs> uh, and so Atherton sort of said, this is absolutely not on. You got We're out there busting a gut 
dodging the bullets and you and you're asleep in the dressing room so from that time onwards there, there was a rule imposed on that tour where they all had to watch if they weren't actually uh, in, engaged outside toughest was 12th man by the way and he, he justified it by saying that uh, he had to conserve his energy for running out with the drinks but um <laughs> and at the end of that match he had to come for the last day. It's all about tough on the moment. I should get off him, really. But um, and, and Athos said, look, you've got to buck your ideas up or you're on the next plane home. And, and he was close to being sent home from tour at the start of that. But he wasn't the only one. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think they felt, I don't know what they felt. They felt, we're going to enjoy this. You know, there was that feeling that they had been let off the leash and maybe going that way, might help them play better. I'm not saying they were all drunk all the time by any stretch of the imagination. Of course they weren't, but they enjoyed themselves. And maybe uh, by allowing them to enjoy themselves, Atherton thought they would be positive in their outlook when they went out to play. It, you know, uh, you'd have to ask him. Uh, I, I think he, <laughs> on reflection, maybe felt he gave them too much rope, but um, you, you can sort of see the logic behind it. Well, on the field, this match was, was typical in the first test uh, of some of the later ones that were to come because, again, looking up the detail, in my mind's eye, uh, spoiler alert, England lose the five-test series 3-1. Um, in my mind's eye, England just lost as they used to against the West Indies, just got blown away. But the reality is is rather different. You've already said, Peter, that England... Uh, were 121 without loss mm. and managed to collapse to 234 all out. Mm. Now, they lost. You know, they lost three wickets at 172. Mm. <laughs> they didn't put on a single run <laughs> for three wickets. Um, but it was. It was really. This is what I mean about the optimism, uh, especially for somebody back home who was listening on the radio. We didn't have Sky in my house. This was all kind of listening, sort of later in the afternoon and into the evening and I'm not sure I was even allowed to stay up to listen you know to the to the whole day's play because it got quite late there was so much hope in patches the 121 for one even the when England came into bowl they took three wickets for 23 before Lara and Keith Arthurton counter-attacked even in even when they came in for the second innings We've been talking about Graham Hick. He made ninety six. Mm. You know, there was there was all sorts of things to cheer, and and they'd actually been given odds. I think the odds were given like fourteen to one favourites for for West Indies at the start of this series, wow. um, which was fascinating because West Indies were also considered to to have weaknesses. Their their opening batsman uh, partnership wasn't wasn't that great. Um, they didn't have Ian Bishop. I think Mike Gatting was the person who said this is as close as England are ever going to get to beating mm. West Indies, and and it just kind of emerged as a theme. This kind of, you know, there, there would be patches uh, where England really showed their guts, and and mostly it was let's face it, when Atherton and Stewart were batting. They didn't have Viv, of course, although, um, as we are to find out later on, they definitely had Brian Lara. <laughs> <laughs> they, they definitely did. And, mm. I mean, as sitting at home, I could kind of understand England being collapsing to Kirtley and Courtney and, and Ian Bishop, although he, he wasn't there. But I remember feeling distinctly miffed that it was Kenny Benjamin who took six for 66 because – uh, Rob, I mean, I'd be interested in your view, but Kenny Benjamin looked like a kind of Engl- English fast medium bowler to me. He didn't look like the ferocious West Indian pacemen that we become used to. And then likewise, 
if Viv knocks you all around the Caribbean, uh, fair enough. But Keith Arthurton making 126 to yeah, bring the West Indies back into a game. It just seemed it just seemed a little unfair. I mean, am I right in that, Rob, or am I reading back into history what we now know? I actually thought the Benjamin, the two Benjamins, Kenny and Winston, were pretty good bowlers. We tend to bracket West Indies bowlers in the 90s, either great Ambrose and Walsh or the kind of Rion King, Franklin Rose era, not good enough. Yeah. The Benjamins were somewhere in between, I think. I thought they were pretty handy bowlers, Winston in particular. Um, Arthurton, I agree, he was a, quite a loose player and it's a bit frustrating. You look at Lara getting runs... Fair enough. Even Jimmy Adams at that point looked a potential great. He had yeah. an extraordinary average. So it wasn't a huge surprise him getting big runs, which he did in the start of the series. But I, Arthur was the kind of player you always thought you had a chance. So yeah, that's probably the frustration of that game because you get him in at 23 for three. Uh, you feel like you're not a million miles away from a longish tail, but actually it turned out they were a fair few miles away. <laughs> yeah, so West Indies knocked off 95 to win. And what was the atmosphere like amongst the, the press then, uh, Peter? Because the, this was a time when there could be quite hostile relations between players and press, as well as quite close relations. Mm. Uh, well, uh, I can only speak for myself. My relations were, uh, were anything but hostile. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was hell of a risk to go out there without... Not just without Gar, but with no Lamb, Gooch had made himself unavailable. So, you know, it's all very well taking a young team somewhere to to thrive on that positive. But when you're going out to the Caribbean, I think you do need a bit of uh, of something. And to me, it was it was brave, but it was on the verging on the foolhardy. And so, if you look at that um, batting lineup, Atherton and Stewart at the top, fine. Thorpe was only just really coming into the game at three. Robin had had was having his problems at that point. Robin Smith at four, Hick at five, as we discussed, could be one thing or the other. Matty Maynard, one of the loveliest guys I've ever come across in cricket, at six. Uh, Jack was batting seven. Jack Russell was batting seven. That's a bit high for Jack out there. And then you had Lewis, Caddick, Eagleston, Malcolm in, in that side. So, you know, you're only a couple of bursts away from that side being dismissed for a low score, which, you know, they, they, they achieved two reasonable scores. But um, I think we felt that after they'd beaten Australia in that last test the previous year, and with the impetus of a young captain bringing fresh ideas, we were expecting something, but we weren't expecting everything straight away. So I don't think there was that much hostility towards the team. I think they felt, you know, we were going to back them because they were trying something different. What had been happening wasn't working. So we'll give them a bit of, uh, we'll give them a bit of leeway on this. I don't think anyone necessarily blamed anyone. They just thought this is the kind of thing that might happen. And it, and it did. I mean, it wasn't a disgrace. As you say, Hick made a, an excellent 90-odd in the second innings, and there were contributions from other players as well of note. So it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't like being, I won't say the number, but what happened in Trinidad um, a bit further on the tour. Yes. It was a decent first effort, and no one was really expecting all that much. So we moved to the mainland, to Guyana and uh, Georgetown, and a match which in many ways is a, a rerun of the first test, because again, England make an excellent start. Atherton makes 144, leading from the front uh, in every sense. I mean, uh, to be fair, it wasn't that excellent a start. They were 2 <laughs> for 2. Yeah, 245 for 3. They'd take that, though, for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, Robin Smith makes 84, um, but from 245-3, they collapse again to 322 all out. Um, Rob, uh, Robin Smith enjoyed the challenge of the leather sniffing. What did he have to say to you when you were working with him on his autobiography? Yeah, I mean, I, I 
love Robin a lot, but I think he, even he would admit he had a bad tour for quite a few reasons. I think this is part of the problem with not picking Gower and everyone, because England had budgeted for four or 500 runs from him because he was such a brilliant player of pace bowling. Now, as it turned out, he got 320, but 175 of those were in the last test on a flat pitch. He had a really bad series. I think there were a few reasons. He had technical problems. His bat was coming down at a dodgy angle. He kept getting bowled, which was really unusual for him. He even got bounced out, which was almost unprecedented at Jamaica. I think he was suffering from burnout, but he didn't know at the time. That's what he said when I chatted to him. He was also having problems in his personal life. He was being blackmailed at the time. Now, he says it didn't affect his batting, but I mean, he didn't know better than me. But it's interesting that the worst period of his career coincided with a period when he's being blackmailed. And all in all, he just had a bad tour. He probably did party a bit too hard. Keith Fletcher, which is very unusual for him. Uh, went to the press before the last test and said, I think he, he had his fingers in too many pies. Robin totally disagreed with that, was really angry at the time, and I think still is. But I think he would agree that his concentration, he was struggling. Essentially, he had played summer and winter for about 14 years. Um, he also needed a shoulder up, um, and he was just knackered. And it's interesting that the following winter, when he was left out of the Ashes Tour and the A Tour, he then had the winter off. And he came back and played. He was far closer to his best when he returned to the England team in 95 uh, because he'd had a complete break physically and mentally. But this is probably, pound for pound, probably the most disappointing tour of his career, I'd say. On the field, anyway, I think he probably has quite good off-field memories. <laughs> well, for those of us uh, sitting at home or listening at home, it was really the underlining of the, the new superstar of cricket. Um, I remember reading about, I think he'd made 200 at Sydney or in Australia, but this was when the uh, Prince of Port of Spain, uh, Brian Lara, uh, came to the, the fore. He made 167. Jimmy Adams made 137. And they were such contrasting styles, both left-handers, of course. But Jimmy Adams, often called Jimmy Paddens, was the, the man who just sort of knocked it around a little bit and was safe, whereas Lara was a god walking amongst men and to to watch him bat at his peak there's nobody had a higher peak I don't think than than Brian Lara when he was in that zone but um you didn't actually see him Emma you were listening on the radio and um, like me devouring the photographs in the cricketer and stuff like that what kind of image did Brian Lara conjure in your in your mind at that time well, I think I just thought he must be magical. That was the way they sort of described him on the radio. You just got the impression that this wasn't this wasn't a human being. This was <laughs> this was someone, yeah, sprinkled with fairy dust. The funny thing was being an England fan, it probably did not it probably took a little bit longer to dawn on me how brilliant he was because I was more focused on the fact that we were opening the bowling with Chris Lewis and Alan Igglesden. <laughs> and, you know, it was almost a bit like, well, we deserve everything we get. You know, the fact that Alan Igglesden was, was on the tour at all, you know, having once been described as England's 17th choice pace bowler, um, <laughs> Martin Johnson had had written, he breaks down so often he might attract sponsorship from the AA. You know, there was, there was something so unbelievably peculiar about the fact that we thought this man should be opening the bowling um, for England that, uh, it, yeah, it, it took a while to dawn on me that th- there was also something special about Brian Lara. Yeah, it was. Um, he was a Kent seamer, wasn't he, Rob? Alan Eagleston? Yeah, yes, he was. I'll have, he, was, he, was <laughs> he and Martin he McCaig? <laughs> he was a very, very good county bowler. Yeah. But interestingly, um, I thought McCaig should have gone on that tour. And interestingly, Keith Fletcher sort of half did as well at the selection meeting he said they said you know uh, Malcolm yes Fraser yes and then Keith Fletcher said Martin McCaddick <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, in the end, they took Andy Caddick, who did really well, but only when I think he only came to the team for the third test, maybe. But um, yeah, Inglesdon was an excellent bowler, but yeah, not quite test class. Yeah. Martin McKay was born in Australia, of course, and on, on the tour <laughs> that he went to Australia, when what happened? Joey Benjamin got shingles. Uh, yeah, Devon got chicken pox. Devon got chicken pox, and then McKay limped out of the first test match, and the Australian press called him the rat that joined the sinking ship. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. At least McCaig was genuinely quick, unlike Eagleston, who was genuinely medium pace. Um, I think a bit unfair on Iggy, actually. I mean, he, well, he's a, so. what can I tell you? He's a, he was a very good tourist. There we are. I'll yeah. tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so England get uh, Lara and Adams for 556. Ian Salisbury takes four wickets, but pays his usual price for them, 163 runs, and England lose by an inning. So they're now 2-0 down, mm. and uh, we're on the way to Trinidad here. And West Indies back first this time, and England shoot them out for 252. Gus Fraser and Chris Lewis take uh, eight wickets between them and secure a, a decent first innings lead, 76 first innings lead. Graham Thorpe making 86. Mm. West Indies bat again, Caddick to the fore this time, six for 65. Uh, West Indies make 269. And then England need to make 194 to win a test in the Caribbean. And uh, the question is for you, Peter, as David Coleman would say at the time, ah, what happened next? And that was where it all went wrong. (laughs) Yeah, well, they needed to get that many in the first place was a bit of a drag because Hick had dropped two catches. Uh, Who's he dropped? Chanderpool. Chanderpool, that's right. When he was on four and 29. And then, so they would have had about 70 fewer to go for had Hick caught one of those catches. I think if he'd caught him on four, they certainly would have had 70 fewer to go for. Uh, the team were, you know, this was a chance, a real, obviously a real chance. And the way they batted in the first innings, 3-2-8, as you say, Thorpe had batted well. Hick had got some runs. Atherton was in tremendous form. They, were, I think they were pretty confident. Uh, I, I think the, the, one of the issues was that they, they went into bat uh, late on, on whichever day it was. and It, um, it rained. That's it right. Rained, yeah. Which made, made Ambrose had a short spell, yeah. So they, they could just go out and blast them, Ambrose and Walsh, for that short period of time. And they they did. I mean, the, the, the saddest sight was Mark Ramprakash being run out completely unnecessarily. And, you know, Atherton went for a duck. Ramps was out, run out in the same over, I'm pretty sure. Robin Smith, a duck. It just went from bad to worse. And, you know, again, my eyewitness in the dressing room, Tuffin, he said he was sitting there looking around and he just knew it was going to happen because they looked scared. They, they looked, uh, you know, they looked out in advance and they were... And that's the way it turned out. Ambrose was fantastic. He didn't bowl a bad ball. He rarely did, but the, he bowled several very good balls. And you just saw this thing collapse and you thought, come on, come on. Last time we were here in Trinidad, we nearly won the series. England nearly won the series in Trinidad. And had it not been for the rain, they probably would have done. And we've come here again. And here's a bit of hope after getting hammered in Georgetown. Come on. I had convinced uh, myself that England might actually, you know, in that way that you do as a fan, you kind of, you think, you start thinking ahead and you're like, well, 194, we're going we're gonna to get those. We're going to win this test. Then we can, you know, we, we can we can win the next one in, in, in British. We, we square the series, maybe, maybe sneak the last one, sneak a win. It was, it was the most extraordinary and, it, and it's still with me 
it, it's still literally my my most traumatic cricketing memory <laughs> of all the, time. If you look at the wickets, Ambrose uh, of those initial wickets: Atherton, LBW, Stewart, Bold, Smith, Bold, Thorpe, Bold. Uh, you know, three of the top five were bold, and four of the top six rather were LBW or bold. He just bowled absolutely brilliantly. And it was actually, if you were an impartial observer, if you were a Caribbean supporter, you'd be in ecstasy. But for a, an objective observer, it was just a fantastic exhibition of purposeful, fast bowling. And England had no answer. There was one element that you haven't mentioned here, which came across to me sitting at home watching it on the television. I mean, the first thing I'd like to say is that once England were four or five down, I was surprised to see that the batsmen knew which end of the bat to hold when they were taking guard. The brains looked so scrambled. But this was a time when Caribbean crowds for test matches were into the game. And the noise and the atmosphere from the crowd, and these were Caribbean crowd. There were some English fans there, but not the, the kind of balmy army and not the, the selling out of grounds to English tourists, of, as we've come to expect in the Caribbean. And the crowd just seemed to carry Ambrose to the crease with that manic look in the eye and that extraordinary ability, which perhaps he has more than any other bowler I can recall, to have the adrenaline on absolute full flow, to have every nerve in his body tingling and yet be able to pitch the ball in exactly the spot that he wanted to pitch it. And boy, did he take England apart that that day. What about your own memory of it, Rob? Well, yeah, there's a few actually. Just talking about the crowd, do you remember the band? There were some great ones. One was Boycott Pad Up Now. There was another one, Too Much Tetley, old chap. <laughs> oh, very good. Um, right. Funny enough, uh, it's interesting what Emma said, because actually I think this is one of the first times, probably Pakistan 92 was the first time, but this is even more vivid, when I almost enjoyed an England defeat. Because yeah. it, it was so exhilarating. Uh, it really stands out as one of the most exhilarating pieces of sport I've ever seen. Do you know, it, actually, it's interesting that it all stems from Andy Caddick, Ambrose, when he went out to bat, all the dressing room said basically bat responsibly, you know, we need to eke out runs. And Ambrose said there was something about Caddick's bowling that just wound him up. It Basically, he thinks it was because Caddick had an action like Sir Richard Hadley and he thought, you know, who are you to bowl like Hadley? So he had a wild slog, couldn't resist, missed, was bowled, went back and got an awful telling off from the dressing room and then just basically sat on the naughty step thinking about what he'd done. And then, as you said, he had that rare ability to, when he had a, a mission and a focus, he was just irresistible. And it, he doesn't get enough credit for his intelligence, I don't think, because he um, on this pitch it was slow, it was uneven and it was um, moving around a bit. So full fast straight, as Peter said, everyone bowled an LBW. You go back a year when he took seven for one at Perth, and it's everything is a fraction back of a length, perfect length as he called it. So he was he really intelligent, and I think the point you made is is spot on. Actually, it's quite rare for someone to combine fury and accuracy to the same extent. And when he did, he was just unplayable. It was amazing. It was an amazing audio sensation as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't think. I don't think. You know that we know that we know that you know cricket is lovely to listen to, but but it's often something you tune into and out of. This was like a spell that was over, <laughs> over so fast, essentially. <laughs> and you mentioned the crowds, and I remember the sound that I really remember is of uh, the ball thumping. I think Athers was out LBW, wasn't he? It was the ball yes. thumping into yep. his pads, which just kind of seemed to resound, you know, across the world into into <laughs> my little tinny radio. Um, and 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 that just that building, that building of tension, the the crowd getting louder. It was it was the most dramatic thing 
I had ever heard from sport. And I, I remember it, it felt to me like I, I, it made me think about my, my mother and what she used to say about like how tense it was sitting through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. <laughs> That's, that, that was what I had compared it to in my head. I think the, the, the speed of it is really interesting. It happened so quickly. Chris Lewis, I think, was down to come in, who knows, eight or nine, went to get some food with Angus Fraser. They were going to walk around the ground and get a roti. By the time they reached the KFC and number five down, Lewis had to run back. Fraser <laughs> just stopped at the KFC and brought one back for Lewis. That's how quickly it all happened. And actually, just one thing. Emma was talking about images, and there's a wonderful picture of Atherton's LBW where Ambrose is appealing, and Atherton's got his hands he kind of padded up and he just held the pose and it felt like Lloyd Barker was quite a leisurely umpire and it, it felt like it went on forever probably only two or three seconds before he gave Atherton out but it's a wonderful picture you think that moment in time it's almost instinctively as if both men know kind of the game hinges on this because that's mm. so important mm. first ball of the innings as well just just yeah. one one observation of mine before we, we leave and go to Bridgetown is that there's a contrast between that innings and when Australia were all out for 60, was it at Trent Bridge and um, Broad got his eight for 15. In watching that, I couldn't believe what was happening. I couldn't believe that Australia were, were doing this and that England were, were doing what, what they were doing. But with the 46 all out in uh, Trinidad there, I could believe every single ball. In fact, it was almost an expectation that this was going to happen. And I don't know whether that was the crowd, the aura, the growing up with the great West Indian fast bowlers, but it, it gave it almost a kind of unique quality in, in my memory of, of watching cricket because every ball that hit the stumps or was out LBW, you just thought, well, there we are. This this is how it's supposed to be. Mm. Um, and there was a great photograph on the front of Mike Marquise's book, Anyone But England, which has sort of disgruntled England fans. The camera's low and it's looking up at the scoreboard and the sort of glum-looking England fans with the scoreboard showing 46 all out. And uh, I say Marquise's not to everybody's taste, but uh, that book was, I think, uh, excellent on that and a lot of other uh, elements of cricket and decolonialism. It was almost like a judgment on the selection policy that's possibly unfair, but I think they, the team as a whole and, and the young players in it felt they were part of that thing about this whole new way of doing things, this fresh approach. And, you know, in the end, there was they were looking around for their dad almost, like, yeah. you know, where's Gal, where's Lamb yeah. to get us yeah. out of this, where's Gooch? And they were looking around and all they saw was people of the same age. And they were, te- you know, they just, they lost it. They lost it mentally. They'd actually stopped, I think, at that point, I think they actually stopped believing that they could compete with this team. And that's why before they went out, they were out before they went out. They just thought, well, this is going to happen. And it's wrong. What we're doing is wrong. It was quite, it was terrifying, but it was beautiful. Very well put, Peter. So we moved to Bridgetown and incredibly England rally after that uh, lowest of low points. And this great opening partnership that was discovered on the tour of Atherton and Stewart. Uh, Atherton makes 85, Stewart makes uh, the first of back-to-back centuries in Bridgetown. Uh, We'll come on perhaps a bit later to wonder why this opening partnership didn't last longer than it did, but you know, that gets us into England selections craziness in the, the 90s. But England, 223 for one. They collapse a little bit to 355 all out. The West Indies are 205 for eight. So England are well on top. But of course, they rally 304 
all out. Gus Fraser takes eight for 75. But England go in, and uh, the Surrey boys say Alex Stewart makes a second century in a match, 143. Graham Thorpe makes 84. And uh, Caddick does his thing, five for 63. And England win in uh, in Bridgetown. Um, was there any difference on the ground when you were there, Peter, in terms of attitude or in well, approach? I think one crucial difference was that the Barmy Army showed up. And, ah. uh, you know, love more hate him. And I think it was uh, Bob Willis who once said that he thought they should all be gassed, which I don't subscribe <laughs> to, by the way. Um, in those days, they had a, a mixed um, a reputation. But I think the England team were buoyed by the fact, listen, it's Barbados, which is gorgeous. There's lots of English faces there, lots of England T-shirts. There's a feeling like, well, it can't get any worse than what we've done. And a flat pitch in Barbados, you know, these are good players. Atherton and Stewart at the top of the order. Atherton was in fantastic form, all the way, you know, pretty much all the way through that tour. And it was perfect for Alec, you know, a pitch coming on, uh, nothing going sideways, not too quick, Nicely paced, you know, he got into his innings and, and he, he batted absolutely beautifully. Short boundaries on uh, on the square, both sides. So the cut and, you know, those shots, he could play the pull, which was his gorgeous shot, could be played almost with impunity. Uh, I, I just think there was optimism. There was also a feeling that, you know, there was stuff going on back home. Like Illingworth had just been appointed, Ray Illingworth had just been appointed chairman of selectors. So you knew the storm clouds were gathering. Uh, and I think these guys pretty much felt... You know, it's now or never, do or die, and the other expression that ends in bust. And they actually went out and, and, and played like that. And I think at the West Indies, you know, must have felt, well, we've done it. Now, you know, this, this series is over. We possibly psychologically took the foot off the gas. Ambrose couldn't bowl as well as he did in Trinidad, although he bowled very well. It's one of those things, you, another one of those things you just can't explain. I mean, the West Indies haven't lost on that ground for 59 years, to England at least, but... Um, I think they were the yeah, they were the first touring team to win at Bridgetown for fifty nine years. Well, you know, forty six all out to that. How on earth does that happen? It's the great thing about cricket, isn't it? You 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 can't say anything's going to happen for certain. But I think they just felt we have nothing to lose. Let's go and play like it. I always say about cricket that the more you study it, the less you know, and that's a, a, a typical example. I want to just focus on a couple of players. You've already mentioned them, but uh, Emma, Alex Stewart, um, his his reputation was kind of Sergeant Major Stewart because, you know, he was always turned out immaculately and had his shoulders back and his chin out. But as a batsman, he was the sweetest of timers of a cricket ball, uh, certainly uh, amongst England players. I think I can recall, maybe second to Gower, but not by much. What was your view of, of Alex Stewart? Yeah, it was interesting because it, exactly that, that personality-wise, there was such this contrast sort of played up, I think, possibly by the way that they were written about between Atherton and Stewart, um, that you had the Cambridge-educated, slightly scruffy uh, young man, and then you had, like you said, the sergeant major, uh, the gaffer, the kind of man from the school of hard knocks or whatever you want to call it. And um, But yes, when it came to their batting, it was almost like the styles were reversed. You know, Stewart was just much more, the more fluid and to many people, the more enjoyable to watch. <laughs> to everyone, the more enjoyable to watch. <laughs> to many people. <laughs> to many people, <laughs> asterisk. 99.99% of the population. <laughs> uh, listen, I, I saw Michael Atherton score a century 
century in a one-day final for Lancashire. He was pretty good that day, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll concede the rest of the points to you. No, I mean, people who read my book know how I feel about Atherton's <laughs> gritty uh, gritty yeah. batting style and how much I enjoy it. Um, again, you know, I don't want to like pretend to any kind of psychology that I don't really know about, but it is, isn't it interesting that that those are the two people, you know, who had to make the first move in this test match that comes back after this horrendous defeat. And aren't they the perfect two people to do it? Aren't they the most, you know, the mentally strongest, um, uh, the most bloody minded, uh, the most determined people on, on the England team? Yes, they are. And the fact, I think, that they can they can go out and, and they know that they're the two best players in the team, that they are damned if they're, if, if they're giving up now. Uh, I think that sets up this test match uh, with their 100 opening partnership. Um, and then the fact that you have Angus Fraser and Caddick opening the bowling, which we'd sort of been waiting for, I think, for Angus Fraser's moment. Like everybody wanted him to to do well. He He's such a, a fan favourite. He He's such a popular guy. And, and again, with that kind of like dogged mentality that we're talking about with Atherton and Stewart, you just feel the three of them kind of made of the same stuff. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was it was glorious. And, and even, you know, interesting for the point of view of things like the resistance that came from Shivnarine Chanderpaul, who was who was totally kind of making his small mark on this on this series that was the you know that's the third test in a row in which he has become a little you know bit of grit in the ointment as well atherton is an extraordinary uh, bloke i mean i actually played in a charity match ages ago i mean and i wasn't very good but i uh, lara got naught and i was playing with him and i got 50 god knows how <laughs> and then and then atherton came in and battered against you know, radio DJs and, and, and people like that, and he blocked it. He couldn't, he would not <laughs> hit the ball. I mean, it's a charity match, for God's sake. There's people come to see something happen. He, he, he wouldn't hit the ball off the square. He treated it like a net. And I said to him afterwards, you know, there's people come to enjoy themselves here. He just said, he, he told me to something off, and then he called me an enthusiastic slogger. I said, well, that may be so, Michael, but at least I'm enthusiastic. <laughs> Never change, as they say. Never change, Michael Atherton. Oh, well, yeah. Um, Rob, um, we look at Gus Fraser, and I I recall those um, it's a knockout games where people would be on the end of a kind of elastic rope and they'd have to run to collect some water or something from mm. a tank and then return it. And Gus Fraser always ran in as if he was on the end of an elastic rope, like he was never actually going to get to the crease. And, of course, sometimes he didn't with his injuries, but he was a man who at the start of the day looked like he was at the end of the day, and yet there he is, 8 for 75, and Gus was a tremendous... Trier, but I think that does him down a bit because he was a very skilled bowler as well. Yeah, he was. Was it Martin Johnson who said he ran in as if he had a pair of braces tied to the sight screen? Oh, that, but, that uh, may be what I'm remembering in my, think, in my analogy. He had yeah. a brilliant record in the West Indies, which is interesting, because you wouldn't always think yeah. of that as his natural habitat. Yeah, I think his grumpiness served him well, whether with, with uh, opposition batsmen, with his own captain or team, or particularly with the media. So before this game, Colin Croft, the West Indies fast bowler, basically said he was a cart horse. Then after he took 8 for 75, Fraser said, I'm just pleased to have bowled as well as Colin Croft did every day of his career, which, which <laughs> I thought was fantastic. Um, yeah, he was very skilled. Um, just had everything you want from that type of bowler, really. Bit of extra bounce, movement, very accurate. Could bowl all day. Um, as you say, look as tired at 5.59 as he did at 11.01. And you're right, he was so popular as well. He'd had all those problems with his hip. Uh, he'd only just come back at the end of the previous summer. And this was kind of the real, or what felt like the real, 
launched the second part of his career. As it turned out, it was kind of stop-start because Ray Illingworth didn't rate him, who was about to come in, as Peter said. Um, mm. But yeah, this is probably his finest moment. I think he got a cut. Did he get two eighths in the West Indies in 97, 98? Um, yeah. But, but this obviously led to victory. So... Yeah, it was just a fantastic... Sometimes I feel a bit sorry for him that the kind of shorthand for this game is Alex Stewart's 200s, which is obviously an immense achievement. Um, but his eight for is sometimes slightly forgotten. They were great mates as well, Atherton and Fraser still yeah. are. Uh, yeah. Atherton used to wind him up by saying that he had a deceptive lack of pace. <laughs> <laughs> which pretty much summed him up. <laughs> uh, he, we often hear of the phrase natural length talked about a bowler, and there was a bit of... Guff, I felt a few years ago about Stuart Broad having a natural length, which now he's adjusted it. It uh, uh, people realise that it, it wasn't really a natural length. But Fraser, more than most bowlers, he just hit a spot just short of a length, the way they used to in the old John Player League, and he just worked at that and worked at it, and it was so successful for him. But I, I sometimes wonder what made it so successful for him. Why didn't other bowlers try and do it? And I just think. Fraser had that delivery that he just kept bowling and when he was fit to bowl it it was hugely successful at all levels of the game metronomic and he had early on in his career he had a bit more pace as well he had that nip that people talk yeah. about he had he bowled a heavy ball I love, I love these expressions anyway <laughs> he, he did have it and I think what he did there was he just put the ball in the same place all the time top of off top of off just you know he didn't move the ball Gus never swung a ball in his life. I no. don't actually think he moved one off the seam intentionally, but he put the ball in an area which, if it did do something, that puts the doubt in the batsman's mind. And and then anyone is susceptible to that. If you know the ball is going to be on the money and might go somewhere, you know all kinds of things are possible to to a batsman worrying yeah. about how how he might get out. He was a, a Gus was a, just a fantastic guy to have in the team, and he he used to um, jib sometimes when people always said how tired he looked you know, and how much effort he must be putting in and therefore look out, perhaps he's too tired. He, he felt like shouting to everyone, I am not tired. <laughs> After this test in Illingworth at a press lunch, say Fraser wasn't fit enough and he just bowled 46 overs in a test victory. <laughs> Illingworth said a lot of things and I, yeah. I you know, we'll be talking about those at some yeah. stage. He ruled him out of the next winter's tour to Australia. Uh, Atherton wanted him out there. This, you know, this the whole thing about who's picking the side became a massive issue between Atherton yeah. and Ellingworth, uh, and Gus was at the centre of that. And um, you know, of course, when he did fly out a replacement, he immediately took wickets in, in, in Sydney and made Ellingworth look um, a bit daft. Yeah, Ellingworth is probably remembering a, a Roses match where Brian Statham bowled seventy six overs in a day or something before lunch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, before lunch. So we'll we'll move to the fifth test in Antigua, which of course is hmm. entirely dominated by the the world record um again i'll start with with you peter what was the what was the atmosphere like as as lara was approaching sober's uh 365 god blimey indescribable you, you know you're talking about st john's recreation ground antigua one of the most atmospheric grounds in in world sport i would say uh with a full house and the Barmy army were there but the caribbean people were there you had gravy with his big disco tiki's disco and you had the gravy the guy who used to dress up in in weird garb uh during the match it was frenzied i mean i i love this well i was there when gravy did it he walked he once walked out to bat at the fall of an english wicket <laughs> in whites with a, with a thick sweater on and a red a red motorcycle crash helmet and a bat, and a bat about three and a half feet wide. 
as if to say this is the only way England are not going to get bowled up by the West Indies. So it was it was wonderful. But the St John's Recreation Ground Antigua was soul. It was everything you wanted from cricket in the Caribbean. And Brian had been batting beautifully. It was a flat track. No one get anywhere near. I mean, Gus actually did beat the bat, I think, when he had... And he, he stood there and he said, I was going to call you a lucky so-and-so, but I've just realised you've got 317 and that's the first ball you haven't in the middle of the bat. <laughs> I mean, it was, he just batted... I, I mean, I absolutely adore Brian Lara. If I could have one person to watch playing cricket, you know, if I was dying, God forbid it will happen, but the last <laughs> thing I want to see when, when the lights go out is Brian Lara hitting uh, the four to win the test match against Australia at Bridgetown Barbados, whenever that was, at the end of a, a fantastic day's cricket. Yeah, the 1-3-5, I mean, yeah. That's it. You know, you just, you just watching him at his prime was an utter privilege. Put it in context of West Indies test match against England at the St John's Recreation Ground Antigua in front of his adoring fans as he got closer to that number. It was just cricket heaven. Fantastic. Fantastic. What was it like for you, Anna? Were you aware that that history was literally in the making? It was very different because, (laughs) um, I'll I'll be honest, you know, like if if you're watching on CFAX, essentially, and if you're an England fan and you're you're essentially listening for a wicket, aren't you? It's all very well to say, you know, to a 14-year-old girl, enjoy this beautiful, you know, historic thing that's happening. But I was 14 and I was in love with the England team and I wanted them to win. (laughs) And so therefore, when I'm listening to the opposition team, but I'm listening for a wicket, not hearing that wicket come, it was very different to nowadays, you know, gosh, I can't imagine. Yeah, when Peter describes it, I think, how lucky to have been there. And um, and I and I've never I've never myself um, been even been to a test at St John's because I have only been to the Viv Richard Stadium and it's really depressing <laughs> and <laughs> often mostly empty. So um, I have huge envy for anyone who was there, but but at the time I, I found it quite dispiriting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping I'm remembering this correctly. I'm pretty sure I am because I think this was a Monday that he got over the line and I was following it on CFAX I'm not even sure that the Guardian had the over by over coverage then but I had CFAX on my desk at at work um, just off Bond Street I was working then and uh, as he got closer I went across to the pub and there was a few blokes in there inevitably uh, not not so many women watching the, the screen there and when he hit those runs to take the record to a man uh, we stood up and applauded he got a standing ovation in the pub uh, joined in by the bar staff everything stopped uh, and we, we stood up and uh, applauded uh, Lara's uh, taking of Sober's record. And, of course, Sober's walked onto the, the pitch, didn't he? And there were some uh, lovely scenes. These days it would all be stage-managed and everybody would have the sponsors' hats on and everything like that. But uh, it was entirely kind of uh, – well, it looked certainly spontaneous. Obviously, Sober's had to get there to Antigua, but once he was there – um, it was just a, a lovely scenes. Rob, what was yeah. what was your view? The one, one thing that stands out in my mind when he hooked, I think it was Chris Lewis for four yeah. to go to three six nine. Didn't the bail flick up and then land? Yeah, that's right. Which is extraordinary. And I, I forget who it was, but someone said, "Can you imagine had that gone off? Would um would an umpire have had the uh, 
guts to give him out on 365 would, or would, would they have played on the windows well yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- I think i think what happened in my sorry rob to interrupt in my recollection and i, I spoke to jack russell about this because he was keeping wicket mm. it just dislodged it, it yeah. you know how sometimes it can go up and then not quite come back in the groove mm. well that's what happened and it was just on like on skew if on the stump and jack thought what the hell do i do you know there's people <laughs> running on the pitch he scored the highest <laughs> test score of all time what, what what on earth should i do so he just put his glove there and he just gently put it back in the groove yeah did a, did a dominic cork <laughs> yeah oh yeah put him on yourself but that i can tell you that go on the, the, the scenes when he did it there it was just it was the game was you know the game finished basically the game was interrupted for however long it was sober's came on, surrounded by people. They love a record, these West Indians, you know, they love a record. I do remember also looking at the ground in those days, one of the things which was a feature was these uh, corn soup, big metal trolleys. And a couple, uh, when the guys came on, when Sobers came on, decided instead of having the corn soup thing out the back, they brought it down into the ground and actually lifted it over the fence and put it on the outfield. And they were selling corn soup. (laughs) Well... This moment in history was being was being played out, which is which, that's the Caribbean, that's the Sir John's uh, recreation ground. It was a moment in time you'll never forget. Fantastic, Rob. Have you anything to add? No, I was just going to say we sometimes forget how early it was in his career. I think he only played something like twelve tests. He had already scored two seven seven against Australia and was well set when he was run out. And it was just it was just extraordinary to comprehend that someone was that good. I always remember being. Not obsessed, but fascinated by his backlift, which I'd never seen such a mm. high backlift before. And then the noise, the sound off the bat, particularly of his cover drive, just this absolute spank. It was just fascinating. And I feel like sometimes the 375 is slightly, f- not forgotten, but underplayed because obviously he scored 501 six weeks later and then scored 400. But at the time, it was just the most extraordinary thing, even in a game where England flat pitched Deborah. It, it didn't matter. It's just almost impossible to comprehend that someone, particularly someone that inexperienced, could play that well and score that many. And but as it turned out, that was kind of his defining quality. These huge hundreds. And I agree with Peter. He's the most exciting and talented batsman I've ever seen. I missed Viv at his peak, so I would take Lara over anyone. I think Viv was disrupt. That Lara was more exciting to watch. He was just just beautiful to watch. I remember when they came over the next time. I actually doing some columns with him for the Mail on Sunday. We went to do a photo shoot just to get some close-up shots of him going through his range. I stood there watching him, and he was, there was no ball, there was no net. He had a bat in his hand in the car park at some golf club, and he went through his shots, and I, you could not take your eyes off him. You know, his footwork, the speed of his hands, and the relish in his eyes, just going through air shots for the purpose of a, 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 fo- a photo shoot. This was a, a extraordinary sight. Yeah, I, when I saw Stephen Smith making those um, dual 140s at Edgbaston, the first test of the Ashes, that's the only time I think I've seen a batsman miss the field as often as Lara would miss the field. Every time he drove, cut, pulled, fielders had no chance because he was missing them. He was choosing to put it at exactly that place or exactly that angle. didn't matter where you moved the fielders because then he'd, he'd find the exact break of the wrists or the exact moment to contact the ball in order to send it elsewhere. What a genius he was. Didn't, didn't Mike Atherton say he would often move a fielder and the, literally the next ball, Lara would steer it through there for yeah. four just yeah. to reinforce how good he was. Yeah. Play with you. Tuffer said that he, when he bowled at him sometimes, all he could hear was Lara chuckling. 
Well, this this suggests perhaps we have a, a player of the of the week episode to come on on Brian wow. Lara. I'm sure we'd all we'd all enjoy that. But uh, it remains only really for me to thank our guests this week. So um, I'd like to thank again uh, Emma. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Peter. Thanks very much. Thanks for letting me relive some of those Lara memories. They really are something special. Absolute delight. And Rob, thanks thank very you. much. Thanks. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in a fortnight's time with the next episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. Listener.